These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to the All-American Brit Podcast on the Believe Podcasting Network. I am your host, Johnny McEwen. Today is Tuesday, August 10th. We're officially in the dog days of summer, but there's still plenty of sport going on, lots of great baseball going on, and... Maybe you fancy a flutter. Who knows? Maybe maybe you fancy having a bet on a game. And if you do and you're into sports betting, Bet Online is where you should go to win money today. Whether it's live bets during games or futures of who you think will win the championship, Bet Online has the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the big next game, head over to Bet Online and start playing today. Bet Online, your online sports book experts. Of course, we are the All American Brit podcast presented by Bet Online. I appreciate you taking the time to listen today. This is the 35th episode of the All American Brit podcast. And on this podcast, I've covered so many different sports football, baseball, basketball, golf, American football, even boxing and the Olympics. And along the way, I've had some really great conversations with others who really understand their sports and understand the events that we're covering and had amazing chats with people in the last 34 episodes. And now here we are in the 35th. And it's tradition in the podcast world on the 35th episode to do a retrospective of the podcast. I might have made that up, but just go with me, yeah? I wanted to highlight some of the best bits yet from the show and listen back to a couple of the conversations that I've had that really stuck with me. The first is my episode with Wilfred Lawrence, English football writer for Fansided and the Pride of London, also the host of the South Dakota Loves Benucci podcast, which you should check out on Spotify. I had Wilf on when the whole football world was defined by the news of the creation of the European Super League. This was more than just a sports story. It was a news story, a business story. And there was nobody better I could think to talk to than Wilf. So from episode 20, here is a segment of my conversation with Wilfred Lawrence regarding the European Super League. I'd say there's tons to get to, which is true. But the truth is we're really only going to be talking kind of about one thing today. And that is the introduction and ultimately the colossal failure that was the European Super League. I don't know if there's a better story to really compare this to than, do you remember Fire Festival? 
Yes, yeah, yeah. Months of disillusioned planning that leads to thousands of people feeling ripped off and left in a void, seeking shelter in a wet tent. I mean, it was just truly horrific. Uh, Let me just kind of snapshot the story and we'll get started. 12 of the biggest football clubs in the world have been in conversations and negotiations for a very long time now and formed what was to be called the European Super League, a league that has founding members, heavyweight names in football, competing against one another week in, week out, year after year. And as founding members, they would guarantee that every year they would not lose qualification in this league. On Sunday, a great deal of clubs put out statements of their intent and their plan to join this European Super League. So let's start there. What did you think of Sunday night's Twitter blast and the European Super League had been formed and was on the way? A, in the UK, it was at 11pm at night, which felt like, you know, just like an epi- the epitome, the perfect encapsulation of what they were trying to sneak onto, onto us. Um, and B, I got, my first reaction was kind of like, oh, we've been here before with like Project Big Picture. I, and I was kind of a bit disingenuous. I'm like, oh, OK, like um, I'm not really sure this is actually going to come to fruition. And then it became like very clear that this was like the real deal. It was definitely, you know, they, they were actually really going for us. And then all the implications came about the kind of potential for FIFA and UEFA's like, you know, literal banishment of all these clubs you know and the fact that the players couldn't play in, potentially in the world cup or or the euros and then it felt like you're just suddenly thrust into this footballing dystopia you know at 11 p.m on sunday night you've had the whole and then suddenly everything comes crashing down and so it was it was absolutely insane and then obviously the ensuing chaos was was kind of hilarious it was absolutely mental uh, it, and and UEFA came out so quickly with the idea of, of banning players from playing in the Champions League. FIFA saying that, you know, any team that that plays in the Super League, those players then, I mean, absolutely freaked out every single footballing fan in the world. And so I think the fan reaction was immediately no. But it was it was more layered than that. I, I, mm. I found it really interesting. Um Liverpool's owner, John Henry, came out and said something like, you know, you, you still want your cold nights in Stoke and we hear you, you know. But the, the the fans kind of felt like it was a massive disregard for their history, a disregard for how the the whole kind of league works. And I, I feel kind of obligated. I talk about a lot of American sports on this podcast and the, the, the European Super League model was kind of an American model. Um and so when, when, when major sports teams are bad in the US, the only repercussion really isn't, is just not winning. They'll still get to compete and have the same shot in the next year. And, um, you know, even if the Orioles are the worst team in baseball, they'll still get to play the Yankees every year, you know, 20 times a year. Whereas this is really different in club football where the, the promotion and relegation system works. Can you try and just kind of capture the importance of promotion and relegation and why it's integral to the kind of fabric of football and how the Super League would just destroy that, essentially? I think the the very fact that that is the essential point of sport, that kind of competition is like, you know, the, the fact that I think the Leicester example is the obvious one. It's also probably the best in terms of a team that was in the championship, the second tier, two years before suddenly winning the Premier League. That's the dream of every club. Um, and And I think it's the kind of point, whilst, you know, if you are supporting a League Two side, it's that is an, an almost unreality. 
it, 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 it's the point. It's the whole point of being able to rally around that team and have the whole community backing you is to be able to, you know, one day be able to compete with the teams, you know, your Manchester United's, your, you know, your Super League six, um, to be able to be up there, you know, and that you have a, as good a chance as any around you. That that seems the entire point. And to just kind of cut that system off completely was just in a in complete disregard of the in many ways of the reasons football was created in the first place, you know, from those working class communities. Uh, yeah, it felt it felt it felt insane. And it, it felt particularly insane to, you know, to claim to somehow claim that Arsenal and Spurs were better than, you know, your West Ham's and Leicester's, you know, let alone anyone else. It, yeah, it was it just all felt kind of billionaire fever dream. And also, the fact, I, th- I think, to be fair, I think there is an interesting clarity. I think in, in, you know, in the reaction to its like, you know, brief, brief stint in the world, there was this big kind of rallying around the Premier League as a product. And I think one thing the Super League did kind of get on to in an interesting way was the fact that a lot of the major leagues have become a slight non-event between the top teams in recent times. And I think it would be we'd be remiss if we weren't to point out that there are still, you know, wealth gaps and issues within that, regardless of the Super League or not. The fact that, you know, you see Bayern and Juventus, yeah, Juventus are faltering this year, but their kind of domination in the last decade and the domination of, of City, Chelsea uh, in the last 10 years, it, it is that that doesn't, you know, the, the fact that the Super League, Super League isn't happening doesn't mean that we, we have solved all these issues. And and I think that, the, and I think the problem with the Super League is that it, it at its core it was only about money, uh, and and that was the big rejection about it. I don't think it had any any interest in any kind of entertainment, as they say, or any kind of sporting integrity. It, it was nothing about that. But the idea of some kind of economic um, parity amongst those top teams is an idea I think that might be worth, you know, like salary caps and things like that, that you have in those, you know, US leagues that you were speaking about. I think that could be a worthy course, but the balance between getting, pushing forward for that, as opposed to pushing forward for this billionaire's club is is one we're going to have to strike. I think that the fans did an incredible thing. I think that the fans of the top six teams particularly stood up for the entirety of the league and the integrity of the competition of football. And they said that, you know, we we don't want to be in some league that we just guarantee our spot. And I think that, you know, some teams like Arsenal and Tottenham, like you said, would, would be like, oh, guaranteed European football every year. You know, we'll take it because... There isn't a guarantee in football for for Champions League or even Europa League. There isn't that guarantee. And why these teams are so beloved is because of their ability to win. It's it's their ability to compete. And and that was being stripped in this league. That's that's what the fans stood up for. But the fans have also need to look at this other side of the coin of of the expectations and the amount of conversations that go into players' sums of money and and that. Um, look, we're not going to be able to kind of reinvent the football economy sitting here, you and me talking. But the, I do when when all of this was playing out, even when the Super League decided to dis- you know, d- dissolve and we're, we're staying, you know, with this with the format that we know it. Do you think that football is actually financially sustainable? 
I mean, d- does the economy of football truly work? We have this idealized idea of it where, oh, you know, there's the top teams in the Premier League, but money still gets funneled down through the system. And d- does the football economy actually, is it sustainable? Is it financially sustainable? I don't think in its current form it is. And I think that almost the dirty secret of the Super League in many ways was the fact that particularly in regard, I don't think that is the case in the Premier League. And I think the Premier League, in comparison to the other leagues, has a slightly better economic system. I don't think by any means it's great, but I think it's slightly more geared towards, you know, there are just more leagues that are of a higher quality in England. Uh, But the dirty secret of the Super League was that clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona are running out of money and and that the financial models in which they've been based on for the last 15 years are not sustainable. And I think that's very clear. I think that's why you see the last three remaining teams ostensibly in the Super League being those teams, because because that that is crucial for them. And I think you will not see teams paying the kind of, you know, 150 to 200 million, you know, dollar sums for a long, long time. I don't even know if that Neymar transfer record will ever be broken again. And I think that is really interesting. I think and of a player like Erling Haaland. I mean, Haaland was, you know, kind of poised to make up 150 million. He still might make a great deal of money, but that there's there's no that there's that guarantee that you can't necessarily have. So many players have struggled when they first come into the league. What's to say that this, you know, great striker from Dortmund is not going to come and have the same struggles and the same problems, but now for an inflated price, just because well, the price has got to keep going up. Yeah. And, and also, I think one thing I remember seeing a kind of financial breakdown of both like Project Big Picture and the Super League. And I thought it was really interesting that even the even if the fact that it, it was all just based on money, the money was kind of inflated um, and all kind of hypothetical. Like the fact that they would get so much more money for so many less games it seems like and the fact that you know you had you know jeff bezos and amazon being like "Mm, not sure about that you know i don't know where they got these potential figures from and and i'm sure part of that is the backlash you know bt sport and those companies broadcasting and in the us coming out against it being like oh well we also like sport but the fact that they kind of just assumed that they get five times the the budget for these tv viewing figures when when that did not seem to be case, the case in retrospect when people kind of point out, especially from the point of view of the broadcasters. I, it, it does also beg the question, how much of a cut is UEFA and FIFA taking off of the top of these champions? I mean, they, they are in control of the television rights, and that's what it's actually all about. It, you yeah. know, this, is a, this is a money story, and it's a TV rights story. And the clubs would like to be able to broadcast their own teams throughout the entire year. I mean, they, you know, each of these owners, if you told them, you know, we'll set up Chelsea TV, Man U TV, and the only way to watch your team is through that, and they got to pay you for it. They'd be over the moon. Oh, and the yeah. one thing I did like about the Super League is that it did kind of cut UEFA and FIFA out of it because they are not the heroes in this story by far. What, what do you make of your, UEFA and FIFA's role in this? I mean, obviously, we talked about how they came out and immediately said, you know, players won't be able to play in our competitions. Basically, that's what scared the life out of the majority of football fans. I think that the, the Super League idea has been thrown around and talked about and people have had their perspective or whatever. It was the fear of God that UEFA put into people when they said, basically, there's not going to be a World Cup. How do you think they play a part in this whole story? I think I think the thing is about you, you kind of separate, you, like you, the incompetency at UEFA and kind of cronyism at UEFA and FIFA in the last years is like un, almost like unimaginable and compared to so the Super true. League. I think 
what the the difference is you kind of have to different differentiate between UEFA and like the Euros and UEFA and the Champions League and the European Cup because because and and obviously FIFA and the World Cup because those institute those competitions are the things that are so valuable and those trophies and you and as you know as a lot of players you know have since come out and said you grow up wanting to win the European Cup or the Champions League you don't grow up wanting to win the Super League and 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 that's the issue that's the inherent issue of this idea is that you can't really manufacture a tournament's history. What does it mean? You know, it becomes like the nation's league and you have to build that history over time. And the only reason the World Cup matters is because it's been going on for a hundred years almost. And, and that's what matters about it. Um, and, and because you've had all these diverse winners and that's the, the history of the competition is the entire competition. so great to have Wilf come on and talk about this huge story that just absolutely took the football world by surprise and by storm. I encourage you to go back and listen to the rest of the episode and keep tabs on what's going on in the world of football. I mean, this is something that's not yet gone away. This is something that could potentially happen again. And the fans stood up for football and it was such an interesting story. I was so happy to be able to cover that with Wilf. Another friend of the show is my good friend, Matt Moretz. Matt is our resident golf expert. I've had Matt on the podcast after every major championship in this golfing season. We'll talk about the winner, we talk about how the final round on Sunday played out, but we also cover the big stories in golf, and there has been no bigger story than the beef between Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka. These guys simply don't like each other, and they are not afraid to let the Twitter world know about it and the interview world know about it. They've made lots of comments about one another, back and forward. So here is a segment from my most recent episode with Matt where we covered the Open Championship. Bryson came out and had an electric interview where he threw Puma under the bus and we even touch on Brooks and Bryson's beef. So here's Matt Moretz with the Brooks and Bryson beef drama. I'm going to shift topics here. One of my, my I'm, not, I'm not usually a big golf channel guy, but Rich Lerner made me really laugh out loud. And he said it in his kind of perfect golf channel voice. He said... There doesn't seem to be a week that goes by without a Bryson DeChambeau brouhaha. <laughs> it's just absolutely killed me. But it's true. I mean, the whole golf world seems to just be talking about the Brooks and Bryson storyline. Bryson DeChambeau went out in a press conference and absolutely aired out his club manufacturer. He's sponsored by Puma, who owns Cobra. Cobra has been a major partner for DeChambeau. He's been innovative with them, and they've been very receptive to his ideas. He's created the one-shaft golf clubs, this kind of seven-iron length that is the same shaft for every single golf club, which he's implemented, and they've now sell and sold a lot of. I mean, the, the, the interview was unlike anything I've really seen from golfer before. I was, I was kind of stunned by it. His words were so harsh and so brash, and he kind of really aired out Cobra. What did you make of Bryson's press conference. I have some thoughts on Bryson, but I Please. also have some thoughts on Rich Lerner because, so I'm, I, I might be ruining Rich Lerner for, for people by saying this, but he has this thing that he does that I don't know if anybody else notices, but me and my buddy notice it constantly. He loves to compare golfers to other athletes and he does it all the time. He'll be talking about like, yeah, Bryson DeChambeau, just for example, or Brooks Kepka, let's just say, for example, you know, Brooks Kepka strolling down 18th, like Nolan Ryan taking the mound on the, it's like, dude, what are you, you know, and like 
like towering over him like LeBron James and just he loves to bring other athletes and other sports into mm. I don't know if he thinks it's like cool or clever his thing but he does it all the time I'll keep an eye out for that now yeah keep an eye out for it because he does it all the time anyway but about Brooks I it's so funny because I or sorry Bryson I was just starting to like Bryson after watching the match with him and Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson mm -hmm. And cause I really don't like him. I really, really don't like him. And I think it's the hat. And I, and I, I have a theory because he didn't wear the hat in the match. And I was like, you know what? This guy's actually, he's, you know, kind of funny. He's charismatic. He kind of like has little one-liners, like whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and he's wearing a baseball hat. And I like him better in a baseball hat than his goofy little Ben Hogan hat. Like, I'm sorry, dude, you are the furthest thing from Ben Hogan. Like you are not even close to Ben Hogan or Payne Stewart for that matter. You just not, you can't just throw on like a hat like that and call yourself like the next Ben Hogan. But um, <laughs> You get so angry about this. I love this about that. I don't like it. I think it's, I I, it's, it's, a, it's like a tip of the cap of the way it's in alluding to the, but I think that he, he challenges all of the kind of, you know, stereotypes or, or nor, any sort of normalcy of golf of it. I don't think that he's trying to say like, I'm Ben Hogan by wearing the hat. I think he just, I don't know. I think he's always worn it in competition and it's, it's, a, uh, it's to honor Ben Hogan. I guess I don't like it and I don't like him, <laughs> but you know what? I like him with that. I like him with the baseball hat and I will say that, but yeah. uh, after, after kind of his comments, I mean, you know what? Look, I, I get the frustration. I get the frustration with the, I mean, we've had, we've, we've all been there with our clubs and I, you know, gosh, I, if only I had, you know, my club was better and this and that, you know, chances are it's the it's the user and not the uh, and not the product. Well, look at what he's trying to do. I mean, his his swing goes inside out. It's an unbelievable move that he's figured out with this driver. That he does these speed swing training sessions where he swings the club out like out of control speed club speed going on. He's got five degrees of loft on it, which is so so flat, so hard to hit. And he's raging at it. I mean, yeah, yeah there's going to be some user error in that. Like, obviously. And to air it, I, I thought the way he aired out his club manufacturer was unlike anything I've seen any athlete kind of talk about a brand or, or someone that supports them. Or, you know, and P Puma and, and Cobra have been such a support of Bryson. Um, I, I found it quite stunning, really. Yeah. And I, I think I'm trying to pull up the, the exact quote from... Um from Justin Thomas, who, uh, who kind of hit him from the top rope. Gosh, I can't find it, but he was saying like, wow, shocking that somebody with crazy club speed who's trying to pulverize the ball yeah. is having problems with his driver. Like that's odd, you know, yeah. like just, it, yeah. it's like, dude, you're, that's the, that's the burden that you bear, unfortunately, with the, with an insane amount of club speed, any slight variation with your, with your face angle is going to, is going to have resounding effects on where your ball turns out. I mean, with spin rate and every, I mean, it's, it's, everybody knows that it's, you know, everybody knows that like, you know, swing easy and the breezy and that kind of thing. It's like, if it's, if you're worried about the ball spraying left or right, swing easier. And <laughs> yeah. you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna have to worry about these small little degrees of, of face angle affecting, you know, spin rate and ball flight. I think I'm the way just... the online golf community has responded as well is, is quite like literally like on comments all over the internet. Like, I love my rad speed driver. Like, I think yeah. it's actually great. And, and, you know, you said 
watching him in the match made you like him a bit more. I, I enjoy. I really enjoyed the match, and I'd like to talk to you about that as well. But the the comment. I mean, Brooks went way up in my in my in my book when he was interviewed, and he said, "Yeah, playing great. Feel really good. I love my driver." It was just perfect. I love my driver. I mean, it was just perfect. It was. uh, I think this in this Brooks and Bryson bout that's going on. I think that Brooks certainly is. uh, He's taken a pretty pretty good lead, and not just in in the driver comment because that was pretty good. Also, the caddy comment. You know, he he mentioned when they were playing the Rocket Mortgage when Bryson like fired his caddy and was kind of out of left field. Brooks is saying, you know, playing great. Love my caddy. My caddy's doing a great job. You know, just like, just totally like, just totally like hitting them where it hurts, you know, uh, which is awesome. And I, and I mean, but like I said, the last time, you know, like these guys are going to be playing on Ryder Cup teams together. Like, and, and, you they've know, that's been quoted. Both of them have said, I'm willing to play with them. Brooks has said, I'll play with them. Yeah, I'll, I'll play with anybody. But, but I don't think, I don't think Steve Stricker's the kind of guy to really stir the pot on the, the Brooks Bryson beef. You know what I mean? Right. I, don't, I feel like Stricker is totally, he's totally a loose cannon, man. He's just like, what Stricker, Stricker's all about the tea, huh? Yeah, man. He's, he's all about the drama and the tea and just, you never know with Steve, you know, you really never know. Steve T. Stricker. All right. Noted. Always love having Matt Moretz on the podcast. Be sure to go check out our episodes when we cover all of the major events and talk about the world of golf. And while I've had guests who, like me, have a real passion for the sport that we're discussing, I want to play a clip from one of my favorite episodes that I've done here on the podcast. My good friend Max Michael Miller joined me to have a discussion about the idea of someone who doesn't like sports. As you'll hear, Max has said to me before that he doesn't like sports, but deep down I know he does quite And so we had a conversation that goes from the history of sport to the kind of conversation around sport in modern day and how sport affects our society and how it's kind of an integral part of our society. I'll stop inferring and just let you listen. Here it is, episode 23, I Don't Like Sports with Max Michael Miller. Have you ever used the phrase, or more importantly, have you heard the phrase, I don't like sports? I have used the phrase and I have heard the phrase. I I have said it, which is, uh, it's just not true. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, I think everyone at some level loves sports. And I have some statistics on that. If That's, you would like to hear them. I, I'm desperate to hear it because I, this, is, this is what the crux of today's conversation is about. Is I don't think that anyone can actually not like sport because it is a, it's a human instinct. It's, it is. It's For, deeper than just... You can say, I don't like organized sports. That's a correct statement. You can say, I don't like certain sports. But I, what, what I'd love to get in today is how, how wide-ranging sport is. So what's your, what's your first thought when, when I say the word sport? I think of game, I think of pastime, I think of people, Hmm. and society is what I think of. I think that for thousands of years, sports have been around, 
and they're never going to go away. They're a way of unifying people. People can say they don't like sports, but I think everyone, I think you'd be, it'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that says they've never watched the Olympics. Hmm. There's 328.2 million people in the United States. And how many of those people do you think have said that they watch a live sports content at least once per month? You're not too far. It's, it's 154.4 million. Hmm. So that's, I did the math for you. It's, that's Thank about you. 47%. And it's incre- they suspect that it's increased in 2020 because everyone was home. 154 million, you know, people say, well, it's only 50% of the country, but that's 154 million is more than the UK and Canada combined. It's more than all of Mexico. So many people in the United States watch, watch sports. The dictionary definition, the first thing that comes up when you type in sport is to amuse. It's to mm. amuse oneself. That's the origin of the word is to entertain oneself, to amuse. And so uh, when I think of what, when, what you said as well, when you think of sport, you think of games as well. But what, what's the big difference between a sport and a game? Uh, I, I think the biggest technical difference is the exertion of physical activity. You know, a game is a table game, but a sport is, you know, something running, jumping, leaping, whatever else. Yes. But here's here's my point. I think that even games on the very simple level of sport, have you ever left a game of Monopoly not feeling exhausted? I mean, exhausted. It's a, it's a physical activity in some sense. You've got to build the little houses, turn them into hotels. Even a mental agility to perform in any game. That's true. I mean, the I think the when you compare sports and games, sports require split second decisions. And there's this whole argument we have had it, you and I, of whether golf is a game or if it's a sport. Mm. Because, I mean, you can argue that, that golf, you know, your physical prowess that you need to have and in that stroke and in the putting and the chipping, there is split second decisions and there's things, but there is time in between like baseball is not, you need to have split second decisions. Football is like that. And this feeling of, of, of doubt of, of wanting to win. And it's all about winning Hmm. in any of these games or sports. So now, so now we get into competition. Competition is an interesting one, especially without within our generation. I feel like with, our generation, I feel like there's been less of a drive toward competition, and we've always and you uh, from a young age you learn that you know competition is healthy and all of that. But we're from a generation that's been told you know you everyone's special. You put your mind to something, you can you can do it. I'm never going to be a center in the NBA, even if I put my mind to it 150. percent But there is something important about competition. What what do you remember of being a kid and playing sports? Because I remember when I p- was playing basketball, actually. I took a ball right in the face and I've worn glasses my whole life and my glasses fell on the ground and they broke and everyone kind of chuckled and there was like a weird murmur and I had this horrible pit and drop and stomach feeling that I can I can feel it right now as I'm talking about it. Oh, I feel it. Yeah. Do you think that some people have had an instinctive bad kind of feeling when it comes to sport from a childhood experience? My experience with it, the reason why I think that my not liking sports, it stems from just the phrase that I always heard when I was a kid was, catch it, Miller. 
like <laughs> I, I sucked at sports every single sport i sucked at and i'd get made fun of in the locker room i wasn't popular because i sucked at sports so yeah there is a grudge i i held for a very long time against sports and i used to love baseball but when i didn't make the team in high school i i stopped watching for a, for a really long time cuz i felt so disconnected and not accepted right I, you know, it's a it's a funny one with sport because I think that people have a immediate reaction. I think it's partly because if they're good at it or not is a huge factor. Like people like to do things that they're good at. That's an obvious thing. I like. I'm probably an anomaly because I like too many sports. Like I I I love talking about. I've, I, this show is so broad because one week I'll talk about you know the structure of the European Football League and then the next I'm talking about collegiate draft picks for the NFL. I mean I talk. I think and talk about it too much. And so sometimes when I say to people. I've got a podcast on sports. They immediately hit me with the, oh, I, I don't like sports, which right. is a real, real conversation starter, by the way. But <laughs> besides that, there's this, this, it's an element of like fear or panic that I see in people's eyes when it's like, oh, I don't know about that or I, I don't understand that and I, I don't get it. I, don't talk to me about it. Oh, for sure. Because I've listened to your podcast and there was one particularly about European football and I was like, I have no idea. I had no idea this was going on when you were talking about the how what was being dissolved i forget the super league was yes. being created and dissolved ultimately yeah. i i had i was like i have no idea what this is right and and i know that there's so many people that care about it i mean there's like i think you should do an episode about nascar because i know yeah. nothing about nascar me neither i'm curious about and it. it's the most popularly watched show in uh, the united states the huge. sport and I don't get it, but I love I love racing movies like Ford versus Ferrari is one of the one of my favorite movies. That was the segment from my I don't like sports episode with Max Michael Miller. I encourage you to go back and listen to we we go. Th- on all sorts of tangents and in all sorts of directions, but ultimately have a really interesting conversation about the kind of human element of enjoying sport, of having a pastime, of being involved in a world and, and being involved in a part of society that you can't kind of avoid in some ways. I think everyone kind of has their sport, whatever that might be. And it was really interesting to have that conversation with Max. I look forward to having Max on the podcast again. We're working on an episode, actually, where we discuss the best sports movies, and I think you're really going to enjoy that. And I hope you enjoyed taking a trip down memory lane with me here, the 35th episode. You know, there's a tradition like eh, unlike any other, as Jim Nance would say, the retrospective on a podcast. You're still going with me on that. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed it. Here's to another 35 episodes. This has been... The All-American Brit Podcast on the Believe Podcasting Network, presented by Bet Online. As always, I'm your host, Johnny McEwen, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.